Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in lovely Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And Kobus, we're going up for the first time to Brussels, Belgium. I don't think we've been up there before, uh, where Solange Chadelach is joining us. Uh, you might be familiar with Solange. She's been on our show uh, now I think this is your third time, Solange. So you're becoming in our, uh, we should give you a frequent appearance card and you can get it punched in the 10th times free. Uh, for those of you not familiar with Solange's background, she's got a long list of, uh, of credentials here, so bear with me. Uh, PhD candidate in comparative politics on China-Africa studies at Sciences Po, the Institut des Etudes Politiques in Paris. Also research associate at the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology in Germany. Did I get everything there? Yep. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, and, uh, and, and the reason why we're having her on the show today is because there are few other people in the world who are as familiar with uh, Sino-Zambian relations as Solange. She has been going back and forth to, to Zambia for, for a number of years. And most importantly, she developed over, over these years a relationship with Michael Sada, the late uh, president who died uh, on October 28th uh, of this year at the age of 77. For those of you who who, know, who are new to China-Africa relations, maybe one of the names you know in all of this is Michael Sada, because for so long, he was the go-to man for Western journalists to get that hostile anti-China quote in their story. He was also one of the most vocal critics of the Chinese labor practices and so many other practices of the Chinese. But at the same time, when he came into power, he became a very, very strong supporter of the Chinese. In fact, just last year, he was in the Boao Forum in Asia, uh, Boao Forum for Asia in Hainan, uh, you know, praising the Sino-Zambian relationship. So this was a very complicated character. And when he died, uh, Kobus and I were just talking about how surprised we were that we didn't see more reflection on his role as a 20th century uh, icon for African independence and a revolutionary figure, and then a man who really did in so many ways define the Chinese relationship in Africa. And so, Solange, let's just start looking back on, on Sata and who he was. And if you were kind of tasked by Le Monde or the New York Times or some other grand publication to write his obituary, what would you say about his positions, his views, his philosophy related to the Chinese? Wow, that's um, a big one. I think I think Satter is a, a a very skillful politician who was perhaps more interested in um, building a legacy for himself within the country, within Zambia, than sort of you know as a pan Africanist or as a great icon um, of African independence. I think he was very much committed to you know the Zambian cause and whatever could feed that drive and that ambition, um, he would basically leverage. And I think he's a very uh, astute politician who understood, um, let's say, he understood the instruments of power very well and um, manipulating the media and manipulating public dis uh, discontent, for instance, uh, was one way of harnessing his way through through the messy landscape of politics. And he almost, in a way, stumbled across the Chinese. I don't think he was really out there looking for them. Um, but it was a, a, almost a, a, a coincidence of growing dissatisfaction um, following the privatization um, of a lot of the state enterprises in the 1990s and early 2000s. And then that combined with the arrival of the Chinese, uh, 
Sata could really play on all that public discontent to give himself the platform um, that he needed in order to speak to the people and become a man of the people in order to eventually be elected as their leader. And I think um, that's kind of, in, in, from his perspective, I think that's sort of how he would see it. I don't know whether he, it, in his own uh, mind map, the Chinese were ever a, a serious priority, but they certainly were very instrumental for him to build his power base. And he used them to his advantage. You know, kind of in the thumbnail um, history of, of of his relationship to China, frequently people make the point that he was very, he was you know kind of quite critical, sharply critical of of China before while he was campaigning, and then once he he got into office, he became much more conciliatory. Is that an oversimplification? And you know, in the second place, do you? Uh, did that kind of more conciliatory tone come because he, he his perspective changed, or was it, was it just more convenient to then make friends with the Chinese? Again, I think I think the way to look at it is more in terms of how do you secure first of all how do you establish a political party in a space where um, it, it's in, in a landscape where it's very difficult to be a political entrepreneur. And that's basically what he was. I think if Sata leaves one legacy in Zambia, it won't necessarily be that of, you know, um, a China basher. If anything, Sata will be remembered for being the founder of a new political party that won an election legitimately through the ballot. Um, and I think that's sort of the way that he looked at himself and he is you know, developed his relationship with the Chinese. To the, When it suited him, he could have he would have been courting, let's say, the Taiwanese, you know. I don't think, it's, it's almost like the Deng Xiaoping formula, you know. It doesn't matter if it's a black cat or a white cat, as long as it catches mice. And I think that's the kind of politician Sata was. It doesn't matter who your friend or your enemy is, as long as they sort of help you get to your end goal. And Sata's end goal was establish a party that can rival the MMD, which was the, the party in politics for over two decades, and then, you know, get to plot number one, as they call it in Zambia, become the president. And I think that was really what he had his eyes set on um, from a very, very early stage in his political career. And uh, that's kind of how we should really understand his relationship with the Chinese. I think, you know, is it an oversimplification? Was he very conciliatory? Um, I think Sata knew all along what the strengths and the weaknesses, the potential challenges and the potential advantages that um, a Chinese partnership um you know, presented the country and presented his party. He knew from a very, very early stage what the Chinese were about. He understands the game of geopolitics. He understands, um, you know, using people, allies or enemies to, to you know, to, to his advantage. So it was more it was more a game of positioning and posturing, I think, if anything, for him. And he could basically switch according to what suited him at the time. Um, I think ultimately... You know, he understood also that Zambia is structurally quite dependent on external credit, on external aid, on whether it's FDI, whether it's concessional loans, whether it's bank loans, or even recently, you know, um, building uh, well the huge euro bonds, trying to raise capital financing from private markets, and that was not really going to change. And he knew that China could be one of the new alternatives for that. Um, and so it, China offered sort of lots of different avenues for for alternatives that Zambia maybe didn't have um, in the past. And I think that that played quite an important role in 
Forsyter when he became president. I think there's a lot of things that a head of state considers or you know, is, is faced with when he becomes the head of state, a lot of responsibilities that perhaps he was not really taking into account during his campaigning, if you like, but that he was always aware of all along. But it may be being in the opposition, his responsibility was to, to throw the darts. And then obviously, when you start governing, it's a different situation. In that way, Sada is no different than any politician for that matter. Exactly. I mean, he was, and, and that's what I think what, what's so interesting about your point of view here is that if we, if we just look at him as a politician, whether that's a French politician, an American politician, a Japanese, they're, they're pretty much the same. They'll do what they need yeah. to do to maximize and advance their agenda. But one of the things that you pointed out back in 2011, you did a documentary uh, for Al Jazeera English called King Cobra and the Dragon, where you had a chance to focus on Sino-Zambian relations and to talk with, uh, with Sada himself about this. And one of the things you highlighted in that documentary, which I found so interesting, was that Sada had a public face and a private face, and he said very different things in both. Let's take a listen to Solange's, uh, an extract from King Cobra and the Dragon. To many people, Sata is a champion of anti-Chinese sentiment in Africa. But in private, he seemed more conciliatory. The Chinese are very hard-working people. And if any country uses them properly, you can benefit quite a lot. Okay. <laughs> the Chinese don't look at the working, the working hours. They work only when the sun goes down. That's when they <laughs> So here in this case, Solange, he's really kind of complimentary of the Chinese, complimenting their their work ethic. And I think for a lot of journalists and a lot of outside observers, that may come as a surprise because for so long, Sata was the go-to guy for the anti-China quote uh, for any China-Africa story. At what point in your kind of study of him and your interactions with him did you realize that he had these two sides and he was more than just the hostile kind of soundbite? Well, when we had discussions about, you know, what the main challenges that China was facing as a country, um, he understood the economic pressures, the demographic pressures, uh, the political pressures that the country was undergoing. And he was he was very aware of, of um, you know, China's struggle with reform and how it's redefining its national interest, you know, in, in the contemporary world. He was... He was aware of these things, and um, he 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 showed that he understood that um, in our discussions. Um, and then the way you understand or analyze the implications can vary, of course, according to your beliefs and your political positioning and your your values, for instance. But he understood sort of the bigger the bigger principles behind it all, if you like. And then he basically decided on what the implications were according to his 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 audience but he did under it seemed to me that he did understand the bigger sort of structural principles behind um behind the the challenges that uh, China is facing today and he knew that Zambia and the African continent just as much as the rest of the world would be part of you know China's vision or China's step into the 21st century. He was very much aware of that, and I think being Hard. aware of that gave him the advantage of being able to use it uh, positively or negatively. Um, Solange, in, in your in your academic work, you you focused um, to a certain extent on Chinese communities in Zambia. I was wondering how the Chinese community in Zambia understood Sata and how they whether they also you know kind of followed this idea that he has a kind of a public face and a private face, and that his his criticism of China might be more complicated than it seems on the surface. 
I think it, the level of, of, of understanding of local politics within the Chinese community varies immensely between those who um, speak fluent English, read and write uh, English, follow the press, follow the media, and then the large majority who basically just get on with their everyday lives and are not so interested in what goes on around them, especially not in the in the in the political world. Um, I think the general, if you like, the, the 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 average impression of SATA for the for the for the ordinary Chinese uh, man and, and woman living in in Zambia is that he's pretty hostile, or you know they look at it in pretty simplistic terms. You know we have a pro-China group or a, a sort of a more anti-China group, and you know SATA is kind of generally associated as being a more of an anti-Chinese uh, uh, politician, but. In, in people's minds and people's perceptions and people's views, there's not really much more understanding than that. And I think that's really enough for people to then go on and make decisions about, you know, their investments and their companies and their families. Um, they don't really need much more than that. They just work on on instinct, if you like, on and on intuition. And they know that they've got a party that's, you know, expressed open hostility and uh, so they're just more cautious and more careful. And, you know, you, you do have to bear in mind that Zambia is a relatively peaceful nation if you compare it to its neighbors or some of the more volatile countries in the region. Um, but that said, you know, that said, the PF are making it quite difficult, I think, for the Chinese people that I've, I've heard. I've spoken to some friends of mine recently since the passing of the president. And... Um, and they've said, well, because there's so much um, insecurity uh, about the succession politics of the PF, so who will most likely represent, you know, the next PF presidential candidate? There's a lot of political infighting going on right now within the party that's almost on the verge of imploding, really. Um, you have a lot of police, immigration officers and PF cadres who are basically locking down, um, you know, sweeping down on the Chinese at, at any possible opportunity to get money off them. So they'll literally stop you in the street, at a petrol station, in a supermarket, in a restaurant. Um, and regardless of whether you've got your papers or not, they'll probably take you in or confiscate your license and basically hold it ransom hmm. until you give them some money. Um, but that that also that's quite standard. You get that at you know around Christmas time generally. Um, you know at times when you know you know there's going to be a crunch, a credit crunch. And in this case, you know cadres haven't been paid for a while. They know that because of this interim period now, because um, of the passing of the president, constitutionally the country has 90 days in order to organize a, a by-election where they will vote for a next president who will finish off um, Michael Satter's mandate, presidential mandate. But within these 90 days, there's a lot of insecurity and a lot of volatility within the government and people most probably will not be receiving um, their salaries and wages and that could or could not be added on to several months or backlog of wages being unpaid. So a lot of the cadres, a lot of the, um, the immigration officers, police officers who haven't been paid they're thinking, right, this is the last window of opportunity. We have to squeeze a bit of money <laughs> before the end of the end of the month. And um, I know that a lot of Chinese people have expressed anger at that. Some have had to pay over a thousand dollars. It's between a thousand to two thousand dollars just to get their permits back. So some people have gone back to China just to avoid this this period. Um, again, it's nothing exceptional, and I don't think it's particularly. Uh, yeah, it's not exceptional, and it's it, it's happened on a regular basis. But some have voiced concern, and they they're quite up, they're quite annoyed about that. 
So let's take it from the guy on the street to the the embassy itself and even maybe the foreign ministry in Beijing. You know, he had a very, again, a complicated relationship with him. This was uh, a man before he was elected in 2011 referred to the Chinese as infestors, not investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, he called Zambia China's newest province. Uh, he, you know, he had, and, and what was so wonderful about his rhetoric was how inflammatory it was, how pointed it was. Now, maybe that was an era of politics where he didn't have to be so diplomatic because there really wasn't anything at stake. Uh, but today, it's hard to imagine that, you know, Sanusi Lamido is the closest guy who came to an outright criticism of the Chinese. Jacob Zuma wouldn't dare do that now. Uh, you know, I can't think of an African politician who would take the risks that he took rhetorically. And then also, let's go back to your documentary and your interview with him that you did back in 2011. And he was very, very clear on his criticism of the Chinese, starting out with really their lack of morality. The reason why people are talking too much about the Chinese is because they, are very, they have been very outstanding in their corruption. They have been very outstanding in getting favors from the current government. That's why the Chinese are on everybody's lips. The Chinese bring laborers to push wheelbarrows, which is wrong. The Chinese, they don't follow the minimum wage when they are paying their people. The Chinese have no condition of service. They don't provide protective clothing. So. The list is endless. The, the, list, the list there is very long, as he says, endless as he goes. Endless. I mean, I mean really <laughs> endless. And, you know, that doesn't sound like a man who was courting China as he was in the end. But at the same time, I'm curious, what do you think China's perspective and China's view? How will the Chinese write the obituary? This was, they were going to cut off relations. They threatened to cut off relations with Zambia if he was elected president. In the end, he turned out to be a rather good friend of theirs in Zambia. So how would you yeah, think if, the, the Chinese interpret this passing? Well, who it, it would obviously depend who. I mean, if you're talking about people within the party and people who are responsible for establishing diplomatic relations around the world, I'm sure they would write a very diplomatic obituary, um, respecting him as a head of state and, um, you know, as, as a head of state, commands the kind of respect and dignity from from others around him and his, and his peers um, and then you know the ordinary person on the street I'm not sure they would know much no, about Sata. No. but I, I <laughs> let me argue a theory here and see if in Kobus I'd like to hear what you think of it I think the Chinese benefited enormously from Sata because he was one of their first real opponents and it forced them to think. It forced them to refine their positions. It forced them to, to not have yeah. an Africa policy, but a Zambia policy. And in some ways, I think they learned a lot from, Zam- from, from Sada, and they benefited more than, than, they did, than they suffered from him. I think that's a fantastic so. way of looking think- at it. Yeah, go Sorry, ahead. yeah. I, I think that I think they also learned how to respond to criticism in the media. You know, kind of because there was always a, there was always a problem with with Chinese officialdom that they tend to either sound very defensive or they kind of go into this kind of defensive crouch. Um, and I think you know, kind of it was one of these moments um, of of a whole series of them where they actually had to respond to some kind of criticism. Um, you know, kind of and learn how to do that and sound measured and sound Absolutely. like the you know. So, you know, not to sound crazy, and I, th- I think that that was a big lesson. I think you're 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 completely right, and um, it you've really hit it on the nail. I think it's a great lesson, you know, in diplomatic learning for the Chinese. Um, the 
the only thing is that they probably weren't expecting to to fight a battle on so many different front fronts because there was obviously the direct battle and hostility that was coming out of let's say Sata the person himself and then sort of you know the PF and the party but there was also a lot of the international media that was bandwagoning you know um, and jump jumping on this bandwagon of you know the Sata story and spinning this kind of anti-Chinese rhetoric out of control um, and I suppose this kind of backlash is something that the Chinese were not expecting um, and that has as you, as you said has taught them a lesson or at least is is still teaching them a lesson and they are they are learning a lot from it I mean actually it's quite clear in, even in terms of the choice of ambassadors that they had um, uh, in Zambia let's say in the last eight years eight to ten years you know that the succession of ambassadors really does reflect you know who can deal and handle this situation and who can't um, and I think that just shows that China is also learning, you know, how to play this international game. And it's also learning, um, and it's it, it's it's cadres, it's diplomats, it's politicians are also learning about how to handle different kinds of partners and different kinds of heads of states or, or ministers or decision makers around the world who are not always, um, you know, so conciliatory, let's say, diplomatically. So, yeah, they, they've learned a lot from it. Well, Definitely. I have to say that I, I was very sad to hear of his passing, in part because I really saw him as a, a very honest politician in one sense. Although he was complex and although he spoke out of both sides of his mouth, I loved <laughs> the directness that he had. Um, and he wasn't yeah. afraid to express himself. You know, and you kind of knew where he stood when he was on one side of the, you know, of the table or the other. So when he was out of yeah, power... Yeah, you knew where he stood when he spoke, but you, didn't, you couldn't trust that he would stay there for very long. But that's, that's quite, it. That's <laughs> so quite for, problematic for that, a politician. It is, but it's, it seems like, you know, he survived. And, he, you know, he was a survivor. He was a fighter. Um, and he was, a, he was one of the most interesting characters of our time. And, and so for that alone, I'm going to miss the color that he brought to the debate and to the discussion of China-Africa relations. Solange, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody, if you're, not, you fami- if you're not familiar with Solange's work, she, she's written a ton on this. Just look for her name on Google and you'll, you'll get more than you could possibly consume. But the best thing for you to do is go check out King Cobra and the Dragon. It's still up on YouTube. Uh, look under Al Jazeera, King Cobra and Dragon. Uh, and you'll, there it is. It'll come up in beautiful high definition. It's a, a fantastic <laughs> uh, documentary, 30 minutes long, but it really, Solange takes us uh, to places where most people could never go. And that's just because of, of your relationships that you've built up over the years with, you know, peasants, with, you know, farmers, with politicians, with embassy people. Amazing. So it was a fantastic documentary. And to me, it's the kind of the benchmark of uh, Sino-Zambian, uh, you, know, uh, you know, research, at least for those of us not in the, in the academy. So um, <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. And Cobus, if people want to find out all the wonderful things you are doing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? I'm on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And Solange, uh, you know, you academic types aren't that big on social media. Are you on Facebook these days? <laughs> No. Okay, there. Well, so if you're one of the few who's not following us, we're now at 200, almost 250,000 followers on Facebook. Uh, an amazing discussion is going on amazing. all over the world. It really is incredible. And we also were humbled that uh, the folks over at Danway, we mentioned this last week, you know, named us the China Podcast of the Year. So we're grateful for that. We've got uh, now we're doing about 50 to 60,000 downloads of the podcast every month. So it's wow. really it's really quite fun. And, and, and people all over the world are joining this conversation. 
conversation, mostly young people. And if you'd like to join the conversation, just drop us a note up on Facebook. If you want to follow this podcast, we would love for you just to look up on iTunes. China Africa Project will come up there. Or you can find us on the BlackBerry Network in South Africa or on SoundCloud and Stitcher. So we'll be back again soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.